more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. Good evening, listeners. It is Sunday, November 10th, and you are tuned to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. It is time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Daniel Watkins, and here at Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you are a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, so any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and our guests and do not ne necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight we are joined by Allison Swartz from the College of Forestry, Forest Ecosystems and Society. Hi, Allison. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. How are you doing tonight? Great. How are you? I'm doing all right. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about what you do? Yeah, so I study how forest canopy structure influences aquatic ecosystem processes and biota. All right, so one of the really important things for the work that you do is understanding the age of a forest. So what does it mean to be an old growth forest and what are the other kinds of forests that you might encounter? Right, so old growth forests in general are classified as stands that are greater than 100 years old. And then in sort of the 20 to 90 year age, year old range we have regenerating stands um, these have very different forest canopy structures so these young forests that are newly um, recovering from forest harvest and are replanted and are regrowing um, end up being very homogenous and that all the trees are similar age resulting in a very dense forest canopy structure that limits light availability to the understory or to the stream below it whereas old growth systems have a much more diverse and complex canopy structure. So they have a lot more spatial heterogeneity, which results in a more heterogeneous light environment to the stream system because you often have big trees falling out or falling down and creating these small scale disturbances called canopy gaps that results in a high localized light that penetrates the canopy and reaches the understory in the stream bed. I'm kind of picturing one of those ideal photos of like a deer standing in a beam of light in a dark forest. Yeah, absolutely. Right absolutely. That's probably a really good example of a canopy gap. So in a old growth forest, uh, how do animals make use of these kind animals and plants make use of these gaps? 
Yeah, so they're definitely energy hotspots. Um, and so below these gaps, we see higher areas of primary production, and then that therefore attracts other animals to have that as a food resource. So they're a little bit drawn to those higher energy areas. And then when you talk about uh, having a canopy that's homogenous, what does that look like from the ground? Yeah, so in general, there's a lot less understory um, because you don't have as much energy penetrating the top forest canopy layer. So you have all of these trees that are the same year, often in the Pacific Northwest, they're Douglas firs. And so a lot of those trees are sort of a mid-size. You can usually get your arms all the way around them. That's kind of how we oh, that's good. can okay. easily define second or regenerating stands versus old growth stands. So in the regenerating ones, they're usually small enough that you can get your arms around. And then in the old growth stands, they're much bigger trees. And so they um, can't quite give it a full hug. Okay, okay. Uh, where around here can you find these old growth forests? Are there any near Corvallis? Or uh, how far do you have to go? Yeah, there's actually some old growth forest in the MacDunn research forest. So you don't have to go very far um, outside of Corvallis. There's some right in there. Um, I work at um, the H.J. Andrews Experimental Forest where some of that land area has been preserved so that it could be researched um, and we could do comparisons between old growth forests. Um, but most of our land across the Pacific Northwest and in the western West of the Cascades is um, has been harvested and because we use it for wood as a resource. So a lot of that, um, these gen regenerating stands kind of dominate this land area, but you can find old growth forests where um, it hasn't been cut in a long time and that land area has been preserved for any given reason. So you focus on uh, changes in the streams, right? So I, I understand that there are some pretty strict regulations in Oregon about the health of streams around areas where timber is harvested. Uh, can you tell me something about that? Yeah, so um, we try to not harvest within areas that are too close to the stream. So the area, the forested area next to a stream is called the riparian area. Um, and often in the last few decades, we've stopped har harvesting uh, in those areas between the too close to the stream and we call those buffers. Um, and that's to protect the water quality um, from different things such as having too high of sediment after you harvest um, and also things like having too high of temperatures um, and changing the habitat too much for some of the biota that live in the streams. So what are, what are some of the creatures that live in the stream that would be affected by having too warm of temperatures? Yeah, so... The really temperature-sensitive species are these cold-water salmonids. Um, amphibians are also very sensitive to temperature changes. Um, and so those are some of the species that these regulations have been designed to protect. Could you give me a couple of examples of salmonids? Because that's not a word that I usually use. Sure, yeah. In, in, my, um, it's, in my streams, I have cut, coastal cutthroat trout, and those are kind of the focus of my study. Mm -hmm. But these are these cold-water adapted species that um, really depend on having cold water habitat for thermal refugia um, and places to exist and breed. Um, so they're very sensitive to these temperature changes. So there's also a give and take with if you have too little light, 
right? And maybe not with the temperature, but what, what kind of things happen if you have uh, too much shade over a stream? Right. So in a lot of these regenerating stands that have a very limited light reaching the stream bed because they're so dense in the same aged forests, um, that results in limited food availability for these upper level consu consumers in the stream. So well, upper level meaning like higher up in the food web. So these um, cutthroat trout and then also we have Pacific giant salamanders that are two kind of the top predators in my systems. Um, and then below that there are invertebrates that are feeding off the um, sort of periphyton and algal production in the stream that is really dependent on having enough light to be able to grow. Okay, and uh, how do you tell how well those uh, plants and algaes are doing? How do, how do you measure their activity? Yeah, uh, we can do that in a couple of different ways. Uh, we can scrape algae off of rocks and look at how much mass is there. Uh, we can grow it on tiles and look at how much mass is there. And then we can also measure what we call stream metabolism that looks at the production and respiration of sort of periphyton and algae in these systems. And to get at this metabolism, we put dissolved oxygen sensors in the water uh, within the stream. And that change in dissolved oxygen signal during the day when plants are producing oxygen and then respiring at night, um, those curves get give us an idea of how much is being produced and how much is being respired. Okay, so if you're seeing a lot of uh, extra oxygen during the day, that would mean that there's more plants. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Bigger, um, kind of a bigger swing indicates that there's more production there. So something that I thought was really interesting with the way that you're approaching this study is that, so you talked about how old growth forests have this complex canopy structure with gaps in it that allow different amounts of light. So it's heterogeneous. There's dark areas and there's light areas. And it sounds like what you're doing is taking a regenerating forest and then pruning it to mimic an old growth forest. Exactly. So um, for part of my work, we did this experiment where we implemented one of these canopy gaps that occur naturally in old growth forests and then cut one into these regenerating stands that were designed to simulate those gaps that occur naturally in old growth systems. And how do you tell that a stream is acting differently or that an animals or plants are responding differently? Right. So we had a before and after control impact study design. So we took a lot of pretreatment data. We had a paired reach system in that we have a control upstream reach and a treatment downstream reach. And one year we collected just background data and then... Over the winter, we cut one of these canopy gaps into the treatment reach, and then the next summer, we measured both of those reaches again, the control, and then the treatment that now had a gap, and then we did a comparison of those reaches amongst the two years, so the before and after part. And what kind of things did you see? Uh, we saw um, small but consistent increases in stream temperature, as well as increases in primary production and... Um, increases in cutthroat trout biomass as well. So I've seen a couple pictures of uh, you and your colleagues doing uh, work in these streams. Can you describe for our listeners what 
someone walking by might see while you're doing a stream survey? Yeah, so we measure a variety of different things. A lot of it uh, is scraping algae off of rocks, but um, and some of it's just collecting sensors, putting those in and out. But the most fun is the doing stream surveys for measuring vertebrates. So the vertebrates in these systems are cutthroat trout and the Pacific giant salamander. Sometimes we have sculpin here or there. Um, and so we do backpack electroshocking surveys to get that sounds exciting <laughs> to get population estimates of the biota in these stream reaches so it looks mostly like a ghostbuster wearing a big backpack and you walk up the stream sending a small pulse of electric current into the water and then the surrounding members of your group have lacrosse sticks <laughs> to be nets and other types of small nets to pick up these, uh, the fish and the salamanders that float up to the surface briefly and that are briefly stunned. Um, and then we collect those and put them into buckets so that we can measure and weigh them um, and get ideas of both the population and the total biomass of that area. Is it easy to get volunteers to come help you with that? It's actually really fun. So yes, it is, but it's also not that easy. So um, it sounds like a lot of work. Yeah, I appreciate having very experienced people because um, there's a level of dexterity that's required as well to very quickly grab a salamander that you only get to see for a second, um, as well as there's a lot of communication involved um, so that you're coordinating when things are being stunned and when people can put their hands in the water and quickly grab things and Right. Have you accidentally shocked yourself before with that? Um, well, you can't actually shock yourself so much, but you can accidentally shock a crew member. Ah. Definitely. You, it's definitely possible. Yeah. Uh, how, how much of a time window do you have from when you say, okay, I'm shocking it? How, how much time do they have to grab what comes up? Um, it depends on how long you're holding the shocker on for, but you don't want to hold it on forever because, um, at a certain point, the animals don't like to be stunned for too long. So you get really a few them. seconds, um, to get kind of this dip net quickly in the water. If you just use the net, it's fine. You can kind of continuously go, but sometimes the salamanders are deep under a rock. And so you have to get your whole hand in under there and your whole arm, in which case we stop the shocking and then, um, you just do your best to get in there and grab it. So how populated are these streams? Yeah, so the common feedback from people who have joined us to do these surveys that haven't really been working in aquatic ecosystems before is that they're shocked by how much is living there, how many fish and how many salamanders um, are in such a small area of a given reach of a stream. Um, there's more than you would think. They're really hard to see. They're well camouflaged. The fish are, fish are really fast in general. Um, but if you, if you look closely, you'll see that there are a lot more there than, than one would first think. Any tips for finding a salamander? I would love to see one in the wild. Yeah. So in general, I have seen them if you're just patient and looking, but if you start to flip rocks, um, cobble size rocks, you have a little bit of a better shot to to see a salamander. Okay, do yeah. you note it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in, in this work, you've had to go into 
private land and federal land and national forest land, how does that get coordinated and who do you end up working with to make sure that you're able to access the places you need to? Yeah, we've had, it took a lot of permitting um, that not all of which I was involved in. So there are people, um, my advisor and others doing work to get permits to do this research. Um, But I've also had really good people at the Forest Service and then also kind of a good mentor at at Weyerhaeuser who has allowed us to to go in and explore the area, pick sites, um, and then help us out with whatever different aspects of the work we've needed, Um, whether that was shocking fish as well. Um, they were there to help. Right. And I don't know if we mentioned already, but your advisor is Dana Warren. Is that right? right? Correct. And what kind of interest does a place like Warehouser have in the, the health of streams? What, what is their interest in helping you? Yeah. Um, they are looking to best manage their land um, and be able to often extract as much timber as they can without harming the ecosystem. So they're interested in doing these experiments like creating gaps um, to best benefit the biota that are living there as well and kind of have this balanced managed system where, you know, we're getting this valuable, reusable resource um, from the land, but also seeing how we can best protect the things that naturally live there. So how has your understanding of forestry changed as you've joined a department of forestry and worked with private companies? Yeah, I have learned so much more about forestry than I and I ever thought I was going to. Um, it's been great to be in the College of Forestry. Um, I learned a ton about forest harvest practices, general management, and um, some of the new research that they plan to do to best manage the area. Um, you can see it when you're out in the forest. You can see kind of what stand you are in, what kind of age stand. Um, and it's been fascinating to learn about, you know, to see what's behind the curtain there in terms of getting this wood out, but how to best manage the systems in terms of protecting the land as well. Sure, yeah. I, so what kind of things are you looking for now as you wander through the woods? So even if you're not working, like what kind of things do you notice that you wouldn't have noticed before? Yeah, um, you can't help but notice... When I'm, when I'm out in the forest, I can't help but notice where harvest units are and how old that stand age is. Um, these old growth systems are really valuable. Um, so when I come across those, there's a lot more to look at. There's, there's a whole different suite of diversity of different plants. Um, and then I, because I've studied it so much that my eye has to focus on the light environment um, and what's how that's changing below the canopy. So that's something that's stuck with me now. Probably I won't be able to avoid seeing that whenever I'm in the forest. As far as side effects of spending time researching thing goes, I think that sounds like a nice one. Yeah, it's not too bad. It's it's really okay. So you haven't only gone to do site visits as like a day trip. You've also been able to spend significant amounts of time in some of the forests, Uh, specifically the Andrews Research Forest. What's it like living there? Yeah, so I have had the privilege to live at the H.J. Andrews Experimental Forest on site um, for about three months for the last four years, I think. Um, And that's been a hugely incredible opportunity um, to just be immersed in the forest. We have cabins out there and there's all sorts of different research teams that come and go. 
Um, so the meeting people aspect has been amazing, but I really just like waking up there and then spending your whole day outside in the field is really nice. And then coming back and, um, hearing about what other sort of wild things happened with the other crews that day. Um, and then being able to sit outside and chat with everybody. Um, we didn't have internet, very, very good internet or hardly had internet at the most of the years that I was there. And so you had a greater sense of, um, what was going on in other people's lives because you spent a lot more time chatting with them and getting connected with different people. Yeah, it's really interesting to be with a group of scientists when you all of a sudden can't look things up the way you're used to doing. <laughs> yeah. And so I know I can I can imagine some very interesting speculative conversations. Yeah, absolutely. I think it definitely led to greater or at least goofier scientific questions that people sure. were curious about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is this is something I've also heard from people doing field work is that uh, there, there's a lot that you can learn just from textbooks and carrying out research projects with existing data sets, but there's something else that you get from actually visiting the site of study. Uh, is, that, is that something that you found? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's not just something. There's there's tons of value in going out and collecting your own data. And part of that's just the excitement of getting to be outside. And, you know, that's kind of why a lot of people are in this field is because they enjoy being outside and in nature. Um, but yeah, it's, it's so it's, it's really fun, but you also notice things that you don't get by just looking at the numbers later in your office or in the lab. What, what kind of things would have caught you by surprise in that sense? Like what kind of things would you have understood better after a day in the field? There's in general, there's just a lot more challenges and there's a lot more variability when you're actually outside in the field rather than when you're just looking at data, you know, nothing's as perfect as people make it seem. Um, so when you're out there, you have an idea of, you know, the mixture of species and how no channel is just a pipe. It's very, um, heterogeneous. There's, there's heterogeneity all over and you're trying to describe the system by collecting numbers on it. But, a lot of it's just a little bit more masked in various levels of detail. Right. Yeah. I, so I remember having the experience of taking a survey of applied mathematics course as an undergraduate. And in that, in order to be able to say anything about a system, you have to oversimplify like crazy. Right. Yes, and absolutely. So you start out with a system that you think kind of makes sense because you're like, OK, here's an input. Here's an output. They alter each other a little bit, and this works out nice on paper. And then you look at a photo of this system, and you're like, well, what about this thing and this thing and this thing and this thing? And there's just so many more details than you can possibly account for. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so all we can do is just describe it as best we can and keep keep going out there and keep learning and collecting all the little things we notice as well as collecting as much data as we can. Absolutely. Uh, so... What kind of, th- um, let me say this a little bit better. Uh, you've described some of the stuff that you've been working on as part of your PhD. And I think a common experience as you work through a project is you uncover a whole bunch of other questions that you would love to spend time working on and you can't yet. So what are some of the kind of things that you would like to get a chance to study deeper? 
Yeah. So, um, I've really been focusing on the influence of these gaps and, um, the responses in, like we talked about primary production, temperature, um, fish and salamanders, as well as nutrient demands and nutrient uptake. Um, but in the future, I think I'll, I'll continue to work on riparian management strategies. So like the gaps, but, um, different ways that instead of just cutting gaps, different ways than we can manipulate the forest to sort of best manage the system, as well as applying some of these ideas and some of these analyses to other systems where there are different controls on the riparian areas, um, not necessarily just the influence of stand age or, um, you know, the impact of harvest management over time. Um, but other things like that are controlling the riparian area, like grazing and things like that. So moving into different systems, but applying some of these same ideas and asking similar questions. Any places in particular that or, uh, I can't talk any places in particular that you would like to go and visit and study? Oh, there's many places I'd like to go and visit and study. Um, I'd like to kind of expand, um, see what happens when this work gets expanded into the Pacific Northwest area, but also um, with some of these questions, uh, there's some people doing work in the Yellowstone area that um, I think have really interesting questions that revolve around these ideas of um, differences in riparian canopy cover and land management. So we have a, a couple of traditions here at Inspiration Dissemination. Uh, the first of which is we like to ask our guests to share some of their wisdom with us in a way to make it sound really intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. I hope not. Um, but I, I, I'd like to know if you have any advice to give and um, to first also say who that advice would be intended for. Um, originally, I thought about this in terms of this being to grad students, but I guess this could apply to really, hopefully it applies to anybody, but it's never too late to ask for help or to don't be afraid to ask for help. Um, that's when some of the best ideas get shared and um, the best sort of collaboration happens when people aren't just on their own and when they're really talking to each other. So talk to each other, learn from each other. Um, that's, I think, the best way to do science is collaborative rather than just sitting at your desk and only thinking inside your own head. Right. Thank you. Yeah, that's definitely something I can always work on myself. So I then the other, the other thing that we'd like to get from our guests is a little bit of a some sharing of musical tastes. Mm. So uh, we asked Allison to come up with a song. And could you tell us what song you picked? And if you would like to say uh, why you picked that song or what you like about it? Oh, um, the song that'll play after this is Crayola Doesn't Make a Color for Your Eyes. And um, it's just cute and fun. So that's all. That's that, that's all. A, that's a good enough reason. <laughs> well, thank you for coming on to the show. Great. Thanks for having me. And uh, if you tuned in halfway through or so, uh, this show will appear as a podcast in the next week or two, depending on how long it takes to upload. So you can check on iTunes under Inspiration Dissemination. And you can also find us on Twitter and we'll be giving our announcements about uh, when things are uploaded and what next guests we have on that channel. So this has been Inspiration Dissemination uh, with a conversation with Allison Swartz and we'll go out on 
some song Crayola doesn't make a color for your eyes. And what was the artist again? I think it's Kristen Advinson. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. The theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamat. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration. Thanks again for listening and stay curious, my friends.